certainly, I don't know how the unbelieving world handles all these kind of requests. I mean, you're left with uh, a lot of hopelessness. And uh, I think that's why probably the, uh, the request for, for Maxime this week hit us pretty hard just because he's that young man is... We've been, he spent so much time in our home and sleepovers and church and his family and not knowing the Lord. You just know the what stands, the eternity stands before there. So that's just really uh, weighs heavily on our heart. But I, all these requests, I appreciate you sharing them. Gives us a chance to, to pray with you and to share those burdens. You know, the body of Christ, we're so diverse in our giftings and our abilities, but that's part of the blessing, meaning... Some people are going to respond by saying, with a lot of empathy and with hugs and love you, pray for you. Others are going to say, hey, this is just for a season. And God, you know, there's, we respond with our gift and abilities, and that's what, that's what strengthens the body. So I appreciate everyone uh, pitching in. Even when it comes to these food train, and Kate be our train director for this, some of you probably shouldn't contribute to the food train, and others probably should. Uh, <laughs> but uh, when Jane was gone, and I, I, I decided to go ahead and commit to it. Thankfully, I had this little thing on the side that says, order the meal. I said, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> you know, so I'm not going to cook any, anything. So uh, next, next couple weeks, I'm going to do a few things. One, as we walk through today, you go to Psalm 119, verse 145. You could turn there as, as I'm opening up here and prepping. Have just a few more weeks before our summer. You saw kind of what we'll be doing this coming summer. I really... I really enjoy going through Psalm 119. It's encouraged me. I can see how the, the Hebrew poetry just learned to appreciate that. And when you go over something over a season of time, it allows it to kind of take root. So that's been very helpful. A few things I'm gonna I'll be looking at in the in in the gap between the end of Psalm 119 and our summer series, looking at answering, tackling a few questions. I I'm pretty comfortable walking into difficult questions. Uh, I want to make sure that our conversations around difficult subjects are healthy and constructive, right? So we're going to look at two, two questions that come out of ideas how family questions. And I, I talked about that doing a long series on, on the family because um, by targeting a couple of things. The first one I want to target is dealing with unbelieving family. How do we as believers deal with unbelieving family? Meaning kids sleepovers to participate in, in weddings that you don't endorse to what do you do when you have uh, strong advocates for uh, different lifestyles that you would not approve of how does your family mingle interact with that what do you do with mocking family when they mock the faith and how do you engage them and how do you engage your kids and how do you protect your kids and how do you engage them so kind of having that discussion because the reality is we all have unbelieving family or family that's not certainly of not the same uh, conviction we are. They might be nominal Christians, but they might be living in truth. How do you help your kids navigate through that? Um, the other question is discipline through the ages, meaning how do you discipline a child through their different growth stages? And there's obviously the grumpy stage. There's the smack of the hand, no stage. There's a spanking stage, but there's a mentoring, a coaching. How do, how do you change it? What, what often can happen is that we, our kids are growing, and we still take the same scolding approach to raising them when in reality there's we should be shifting our way of, of of raising our children as they get older the reality is as they get older you don't hold on tighter to them some people want to squeeze them tighter as they get older that's not that doesn't work by the, by the time your child's 16 it's time to start letting go 
not how can I clamp down and ban their phones for the next six months. You have to walk through that because ultimately you need to have the big, the big picture in view whenever you're raising children, and that for, they're not for your glory, they're for God's glory. So we'll discuss some of that. I don't know we'll have time for the third one. What does it mean to train up a child? Does that mean that I'm the only person that's supposed to speak into the life of my child? Is a grandfather supposed to speak to him? Is it okay to be in Sunday schools? Is it okay to be what I do when my child starts having deconstructed his faith? How do I how do I navigate that? Is it for me to get him saved or so navigate? What does it mean to train up a child? We use that verse a lot. It's kind of this this verse we use for a lot of reasons. So how do, how do we engage that question? What does it really mean to train up a a child? Now, there are other questions we could have tackled. I learned a good valuable lesson to see this morning in a few minutes before. Lawrence taught me a good lesson this morning already. How do you handle arguments with your spouse? I'm just over discussing. He says it's kind of like when you get pulled over by a police officer. The more you argue, the more trouble you get yourself into. When you first get pulled over, you think you're going to get away with a warning, but you start arguing, you get a ticket. So, see, a few minutes, Lawrence gave me some brilliant wisdom on how to navigate uh, argument with the spouse. I hope Mark Jr. heard that too because he was taking notes. So... <clears throat> Given words of, of wisdom in that. All right. I already got myself a ticket for that this morning, I'm sure. All right, verse 145. Yeah, I hear you. Back up the truck here. All right. It's really, it's really neat as you read through. Now we're we're looking at these two these two next um, stanzas together because they they both look at his cry and his lamentations and his response to that. Meaning, going how you go from the agony and, and agitation to to adoration and how he transitions there. And so, both of these stanzas address that. I don't know how much we'll cover today, but I wanted to to speak to that. Let's read the first, and I think we'll go ahead and read both uh, a little bit longer this morning, but let's read both of these sets of stanzas. Let's begin with the first one here in verse 145. It goes, With my whole heart I cry. Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purposes, but they are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause, redeem me, give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes, but great is your mercy, O Lord, and give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So taking these two cries and these two, as he cries out to God, 
what we're going to see in this pattern of these two stanzas here, a few common themes stand out, and we kind of brought that to our attention last week. A few common themes stand out for me as we're reading through Psalm 119. The first one we talked a lot about last week, just reminding us, is one, that the relationship that the psalmist has between God and his word. This is not just about God's word. It's about God and his view of God and God and his word and his view of the word. So the first thing we mentioned last week and just a few big picture lessons that we're kind of summarizing as we're walking through. This is letter 19 and 20. We have two more after this to look at. We'll take, I don't know we'll finish this today, but we'll, we'll complete those in the next couple of weeks. The first thing is the relationship between God and his word, first of all, is the fact that they are one and the same. They are one and the same, meaning God and his word are inseparable. Loving one is loving the other. Obedience to one is obedience to the other. We talked about that last week, so I want to, to emphasize that more, but that is significant as he continues to uplift God's word. He, he, he brings together those two things. They are one and the same. God and his word are one and the same. It, it, I mentioned this last week, but I, I see this continually. I had a conversation with, with a parent this week about a simple question of an out. I don't really address the issue of spanking. This child was a young child that deserved, and he's, he's the spanking age, put it that way. But I, I kind of do it in a backdoor way. Like, well, when, listen, I understand at that age, you know, when my kids were that age, I had to spank them a lot, you know. So that's kind of my way of alluding a back, you know, kind of a side way of, because, yeah, well, you know, I just don't really, uh, yeah, I just don't really spank because, you know, I spanked him once, and he looked at me with those eyes like he was angry at me, and I don't want him to be angry at me. I says, well, yeah, I understand what you're saying, you know, but, you know, God's word says this. That's kind of why I trust, the, you know, God's word in that. And in other words, and this is a young man who claims to be a believer, claims to all these things, but somehow there's, this doesn't work for him. So he sees God, sees God's word, but God's word doesn't work for him in this one area. And the danger is when we step out and, and do that or say something like that. So they are one and the same. Two, they are good and they do good. Continually, the idea that God is good and his word is good. God does good and his word does good, meaning obedience to God's word, but following God's word, God is good and his word is good. Uh, they are good and they, they do good. So it is true about God, so it is true about his word. What is true about God is true about his word. And the third one I put down here, for just simply for this morning, as we, we, get to get, we launch here, they are both eternally faithful and both always true. God and his word are eternally faithful and always true. When he laments here and he makes a plea, it is not a doubting God or doubting his word plea. It is a plea in full confidence, in full hope, and in full expectation that God and his word are faithful and true. That's different from what most of us experience in our own flesh. Our cries out, our lamentations, our grieving is, is always, not always, but oftentimes has an undercurrent of unbelief in it. Meaning, does God's word really mean this? Is God really good? Is this really true? His, his cries out to God, and you will see this in the way he affirms God. He affirms God, he affirms in truth in the middle of his crying, even before receiving some kind of answer to his cries and his pleas. So here's what we see in these following stanzas. The idea that he cries out, yes, but in full confidence and full hope that God's 
is true and his word is true and God is faithful to that, they will prevail, they'll overcome, and we'll see both of these stanzas end with an eternal perspective, right? The f- verse 152 stop, ends by saying, they have founded them forever. Your testimonies have been founded forever. And then verse 160, he says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So he, he completes both of those stanzas with an eternal perspective on he's crying and lamenting his situation, but he steps back in both stanzas and ends with, yes, but your one thing is eternal. It's, it's your word. God and his word are eternally true and eternally faithful. I, th- I think in every one of our circumstances and every one of our lamentations and our crying out, that's, that's the final thought that we need to be left with, words of encouragement. I, I know Mark, when he does a lot of counseling, he, likes to, he says this a lot. I like to leave people with hope. So basically, yes, in the middle of the fight and, 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 and the, the, the nail scratching and the slapping and the fighting and the, the painful agony of what's the battling going on, before we leave here, let's step back for a moment. God is good. God's word is true and his word is faithful. And there's, as we follow in obedience, there's, there's hope in this. And so you, you back up and have an eternal perspective on what you're, you're experiencing. So we'll see this in, in these stanzas as he speaks out. He pleads in faith. He pleads in anguish, but not doubting, but faithfully hoping. So what I want to look at is <clears throat> what we see when... Ah, I know how that on the slide. There you go. He cries out to God, first of all, in verse 145. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bridge these two stanzas in some of the comments I'm making here and basically observation with these two stanzas. The first thing he begins with in the first stanza, the, the cough stanza, verse, uh, verse 145, he cries out with an undivided heart, with full devotion, undivided, complete. We talked about what it means to be a divided man, a divided heart, right? We talked about that in a few stanzas prior to this one. He cries out to God with an undivided, not doubting, not wavering. That's different than uh, crying out to God with a divided interest or conflicted interest or conflicted heart. He cries out to God with a whole heart, complete undivided his cry and i I put this down i think in 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 my comments here his cry drove him to god's word and god's word drove him to god so my my question i wrote down for myself here is where do my cries take me where do my cries take me when i cry out to god where does it take my heart where does it take my mind have you not seen so many times it, it, it takes us away from God instead of towards God? It always baffled me whenever a parent wants to punish a child and you're punished so you won't be able to go to youth group. Like, so you're, you're, you're going to pull him away in, in this situation. You're going to pull him away from the place where he, he can be taught or he's in, in the right environment to be there so he can stay home and be punished and stay to your room and Hopefully your phone is not there and your tablet's not there and TV's not there. I don't know. But how many times when I cry out to God, it doesn't drive me towards him. It drives me a wedge between me and God. His crying out to God brings him closer to his word. That's why he cries out. He says, I will keep. Now, you talk about the obedience part here in just a minute. But with my whole heart, I cry out to God. I, I pray and pray. Listen, God knows your heart. Crying out to God isn't 
Is it so God can discover what you have in your heart? He knows what's in your heart. But as you cry out to God, pray, first of all, that God would help your unbelief. Lord, help me in my weakness. Lord, help me in my faithlessness. Lord, help me in my doubting. Lord, help me in my, in my desire to question you. Lord, help me in my desire right now in this moment to ask the question, why? I had a young man going through a hard time, and, and uh, the mother wrote to me this week. And I, I, it, You see the desperation at the end because here she is. This is a couple that spent years on a mission field. So they're, you know, this is not nominal Christians. They're, they're committed believers serving. But at the end of her email, her son was struggling. She says, you know, I think I just don't know why God would allow this for my son because he's been such a good young man. He loves the Lord and wants to love people. It's like, ah, uh, don't, why, why would your cry of plea lead to God, why would you allow this? Her cry should draw her towards God's word and trust in God and his sovereign work that God's going to be glorified in this. May, it, may, it draw, may our cries and our agonies draw us to God and not away from God. So the way people have the, you ever had your, your kids ask you this question? What, I can't ask a question? I have a you know, right to ask why? We feel that way about God. See, we carry that into our adulthood and we think, well, don't I have a question to ask why to God? Well, you have, a, you have a right to come to God and say, Lord, help me understand. But there's a big difference in saying, Lord, help me understand. There's a world of difference in sitting there and saying, Lord, why did you allow it? Versus, Lord... Why did this happen? Help me understand how you can be glorified through this. And I don't, I want to sound dismissive here. I'm not going to sound simple here. I'm not going to be act like this is an easy thing. When you lose a child and you discover the harsh reality of, of the finality and, and death and bad news, and I'm not at all being dismissive here, and you should shake it off and say, well, through, you know, I'll do all things through Christ. I'm not being simplistic when I'm saying that. All, all I'm saying is that may, may our cries lead us towards God, to look towards him, not away from him. May it draw my heart. And I've said this many times, and uh, Mark uses this term saying, you know, you speak truth to yourself. But many times you affirm what is true and let that shape your heart. And here, bringing his whole heart to undivided. And then you see the, the second thing I put down with daily, with daily consistency. I like the, this contrast. You know how he contrasts verse 1 47 and then one, one, verse 148. Again, I'm going to be not doing these verses in sequential fashion, but more in thematic fashion. What did he say? First of all, in verse 147, I rise before dawn and I cry for help. Or he said, the first thing in the morning, I rise up in the morning and said, Lord, of course, many of us have enough words for the day, so that's the first thing we think when we wake up, oh, Lord, my, i got to get out of bed. You know, my, my day awaits me. Uh, and then the second part, is in verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night. I may meditate on your promise. What he's saying is what in, in these two verses, one, when I rise in the morning, my first thing is to cry out to you, Lord. And late in the evening, what do I do? I meditate on your, your promises. He commits his day on the front end to the Lord, first thing in the morning. Listen, I, if you're as weird as Mark Hager and you get up at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, that's fine, you know, and... By 8 o'clock, you've read, you've read three uh, commentaries, and you've written a book on the subject already. That's fine. <laughs> but most of us don't live that way. 
But waking up in the morning, it is it is a blessing, even like reading through the Psalms, because reading through a Psalm is is a word of of worship and adoration in the morning. They're songs, right? So you wake up in the morning and you read a word. And of course, if if you're, uh, I would encourage you to, of course, spend time in the morning. Uh, committing your day before the Lord. But then at night, what does he do at night? Well, at night he meditates on his promises. He looks back on the goodness and faithfulness of God. So uh, at night he looks, in the morning he commits his day to the Lord. At night he looks back and thanks the Lord for his faithfulness to his promises. So he wraps his day in this cry and this crying out to God. What a blessing it is for, for us as believers to to be able to do so. Listen, there there are days where we're all in the same place. There are days where we don't want to get up. Now, physically, you may want to get up because breakfast smells good if there's bacon going or something. But there are days where I don't want to answer calls and I don't want to answer emails. So if I don't answer emails for two, three days, it's because I don't want to answer them anymore. I don't want to look at them. You ever get those emails? You know who sent it? Like, uh, I don't want to open this one. Not before my second cup of coffee where I'll open up this email. Listen, there are days that way, and uh, we have to just we have to commit our days to the Lord. First of all, acknowledge our own frailty. We're all in the same place. Thankfully, we're not all in the same place at the same time. That would be the difficult thing. Thankfully, I've got men and, and women that encourage, and that we encourage each other at, at times where the other needs to be strengthened and need to be encouraged. Thankfully, we're not all on that roller coaster at the same point at the same place and time, but God gives us each other to encourage each other in truth and in word. But now with uh, confidence in his word, and two things, first of all, with confidence in his word as to what God says. Verse one, the second part of one, verse 147 says, I hope in your words. All your commandments are true, verse 151. Verse 156b, give me life according to your rules, according to your law, according to your word. Now notice that these are they're affirmations that he's making, not after the fact. Not after the fact, but in the midst of his lamentation, in the midst of his crying out. He's affirming his confidence in God's word. Two things, we'll see this in the next point. He affirms what God says, and then he affirms who God is. But he does both of those in the midst of his limitation. Those two things are not contradictory. Crying out to God, and yet fully affirming his confidence and his hope and his expectation. What I ask the question, where do you go when you cry out? The other question I would say is, what do you sound like when you lament? What do you sound like when you cry out? Is it a woe is me, or is it woe is God? You know, what do we sound like when we, we cry out? It is, it, it, listen, we, we have the ability to, God's given us in his grace the ability to respond in such a way that we can affirm truth and go to his word. And he does this with confidence in his word, with confidence in what God says. And I put down the second one, I put down with confidence in the character of God. That's beautiful. He describes it here, verse 149, verse 156, verse 159. What does he say? So first of all, again, God and his word are one and the same. So what he affirms about the word, what does he say about God? Hear my voice according to what? According to your steadfast love. Now according to my, according to, act according to your love. Be, he'll be true to his word and he'll be true to his nature, right? 
Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. Great is your mercy, O Lord. He affirms his love. He affirms his mercy. He expresses in the midst of his crying out, what does he do? He expresses confidence in God's word and what God says. He expresses confidence in the character of God and who God is. His desire through the midst of his cries is not simply that he would have the right answers but that God's word would be proven to be true, would be demonstrated to be true, might be evident that God is who he says he is, that God may be known, that God may be proven true, and God may be steadfast in love in that. So as he cries out to God, first of all, he cries out in the midst of his lamentation, in the midst of his cries. It's not, you know, a month later, okay, I went through this big ordeal and I was scrambled eggs over here but lord that was a month ago looking back now i thank you it's in the midst of that turmoil that he cries out and his ultimate desire is what is not that he would find peace that he would find rescue that he would find an escape ultimately is that god's word and god's nature will be proven and be magnified and be glorified that is beautiful because that's the only way i can properly respond to the agony that we might experience, the anguish that we might experience, is that ultimately in the midst of that, he cries out that God might be made known for who he is, and I affirm these things to be true. So he, he, he speaks with great confidence as to what God says, as to who God is. And then he says, with, I put down, he, he puts down with confidence, he, he cries out with confidence in his nearness. I find this to be significant in that it, isn't it that one, one, of the, one of our temptations in the midst of our cries and agony and lamentations is what? To question, to question where is God? How, how do we express this? Does God care? When we say does God care, we're saying does he even notice what I'm going through? So as soon as we say well, does God care, that's indicative of the fact that somehow he's too busy somewhere else to worry about me. Now this... I, as a younger believer, that was a struggle for me because I saw myself in but God. I, I saw God of the, the universe and his, and his greatness controlling the affairs of men. But I'm thinking, why does he care about the little minute details of my little life? And I realized God is the God of the great and the small. And he's God of every little minute detail in my life as he is the God of every great event controlling the affairs of men. And God is God of both. So... The nearness, this, this idea, in the midst of his affliction, and that's, as a matter of fact, it's a turning point in this first stanza because we see in verse 151, the previous stanza was all about the, God's righteous word and the righteousness of God and the righteousness of his word, and he makes one petition at the end of that stanza. These two stanzas are spewing over of all these petitions, all these cries, but yet in verse 151, he says, but... But, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. You notice how every single time it's his word and God are one and the same. He says, what, you are near. Uh, That is certainly one of the biggest temptations we have is feeling isolated and feeling alone. And listen, you can feel isolated alone when you're married, around people. Isolated alone doesn't mean you're not around people. You can feel most isolated around people. You're surrounded by crowds of people, and yet you feel alone. And the sense that somehow God is not present, 
God doesn't see, God doesn't perceive, or God doesn't care. So on the contrary, he says, but you are near. Notice even in the midst of his affliction here, his midst of his crying out, I should say, that no new revelation is given to him at this point. There's not a new revelation. Oh, I saw a rainbow. Okay, God, you're near. I got this tingly feeling that doesn't come from the burrito I just ate. I got this other tingly feeling that tells me, wow, I just got this sense of peace. The sense of peace came on him. No, he still, he still affirmed the same truth about God and his word that he always had. And this nearness of God came from, un, from reflecting on God and who he is and his commandments being true. We're, we're, we're always looking for another sense of some, like God's showing me something else. Like what he's given me is not sufficient. Like somehow his word is not sufficient, that I need more than that, and we're, we're seeking something else to affirm that God is there, it's going to be okay. I saw Jesus in the clouds. And this is not funny. People tell me this stuff all the time. On my way here, I was going here and I was going to become a member of the church, but my daughter got sick. God's telling me I shouldn't be a member here. No, he's saying go get some medicine and go to bed. Come in here, but, you know, the first thing I saw, and I saw this, and, boy, I just, God's telling me. Really, we're seeking some external affirmation. He finds his affirmation in contemplating who God is and who his word is and what his word is and confidence in those two things. That, is that not sufficient? Is that not sufficient? It's going to become more and more offensive it's going to become more and more offensive in this society to affirm to people that God's word is sufficient. We're seeing it more and more in the school environment because we're addressing issues. And people will write to me, mother wrote to me, super irate. Not everything's in the Bible. Well, I understand that. You don't have open heart surgery, you know, and, and learn how to do that by looking at the Bible. I, I understand that. But this idea that somehow the Bible is not sufficient for all things. One guy I was reading because I was preparing to my notes for the spanking question. Here's a believer writing a whole, a whole book on spanking, going through every scripture, describing how. But then with that, he bounces up with what psychologists will say and how it damages a child. And like, no, that's not sufficient. We're going to have to go over here to see statistics and to see psychologists and to see it's. Somehow we, we, we undermine this idea. Now, I, I understand what some people mean by this. So I'm not impugning everybody's motives when they say this. But what, what I'm saying is that when the psalmist goes here, he finds sufficiency in what he finds in God and what he finds in his word. And it's going to be more and more offensive in this world to say the Bible is enough for us to understand, to process, to filter what we see, to filter what we hear. And so when we talk about these different lifelong issues, the first thing we're seeing, the struggle we're seeing, is that people are offended that we just say we're going to, like, oh, we're just going to go to the Bible. More and more, that's going to be the problem. And so let's, 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 be, let's be prepared for that and, ang- and answer, of course, in love and truth. But God's word is what is sufficient here. We see a few other scriptures I put down. Why do we question sometimes the nearness of God? Uh, I put down a few verses, even, uh, I think I put some of the references here. I'm not going to go to them, we're kind of out, out of time. Let me say this as a finishing thought on this nearness of God issue. 
I hope that in your spouse, in a parent, in friends, you find people that are supportive, that are helpful, that are near to you, that are encouraging your word. But let me tell you this. That will be dysfunctional at one point if you don't first and foremost find your anchor in God and his word. Because if you're looking for validation and the other well over there to fill that well for you that only God and his word can fulfill, you will at some point be frustrated with another friend. You will be frustrated with the spouse because they're not fulfilling what you think they need to be fulfilling. God's word is sufficient even there. And as you grow and build on that, that allows you to build healthy relationships even beyond that. So next week we'll finish. There's only three more thoughts here I had for, for this stanza here. And we'll look at these three next week and take a few minutes for that and then pick up on our last two stanzas as well. I walk through these guys. I tell you, I read, as I read through Psalm 119, I just... It's emotionally charged because Hebrew poetry is designed to be emotionally charged. It's, it's worship. It's your... your your, he, he's member is repetition of thought. Hebrew poetry is not repetition of sound; it's repetition of thought. He builds these thoughts to build momentum, to build emotion in the right way, right? Get, got, uh, directed towards God and His words. So, it's normal that as we read these, we see the intensity building in what He's saying, and of course, He does so in a God-inspired way. So that's a beautiful thing to see. So, pray you have a wonderful day. Let me close us in a word of prayer, Father. May we come to you, and yes, our cries are many. We wake up in the morning crying out to you in hope, in need. But Lord, help us to do so, not doubting, but fully confident in your word, and fully confident in who you are. Lord, may that be sufficient in my life. May that be my foundation. May that be my refuge. Lord, I commit this to you, Lord. We mentioned in the beginning of our class many, many needs. We cried out to you, Lord, in prayer. Many things that even, like Liz would mention, the waiting is difficult, waiting on answers. As we do, Lord, may we do so in full confidence and faith in you. Thank you for our time and your word this morning. Lord, thank you for these words of truth. We commit this day to you. In your name we pray. Amen.